Radio Maria England now presents The Hermit, Part 1. The Hermit has been created by the author David Talkington, who has re-edited, abridged his book Wisdom from the Western Isles. David is also the narrator. Some people can make do with seven hours sleep, others with six or five. I need eight, and if I can get nine, I'll take them. That particular Monday night, after my first meeting with the hermit Peter Calvey, I slept for only two hours. If I wanted to rise to something more than the subhuman before the hermit arrived, I simply had to get more sleep. When I did finally emerge, I plucked up enough courage to step outside and bid what was left of the morning a cheery good day, only to discover that it too had had a rotten night. Disgruntled-looking clouds were scurrying across the sky, peering threateningly down, as if to dare you to wander more than a drenchable distance from home. I came inside and allowed myself a medicinal nip of the local wine. It's a much sought-after luxury in more equitable climates. In the Isles, it's a necessity, an indispensable bulwark, to fortify the spirits against the elements. I was awake for hours the night before, going over the conversation with Peter in my mind. He was so right. Although I was not in any way making a criticism of me personally, I could see that I was more of a Christian stoic than anything else. Jesus Christ was the first and greatest of all mystics because he was at all times open to receive the Holy Spirit who first conceived him. All he said and did was infused with the love that God continually lavished upon him. What Peter was trying to teach me was that if I continually allowed the Holy Spirit who at all times filled Jesus to fill me, then I would do what he was able to do, as he promised at the Last Supper. I could see why Peter wished to follow his mentor, St. Francis of Assisi, into solitude. It was so that he could have more time for prayer, to open himself to the love of God. Now I was beginning to understand the deep and profound prayer that follows first enthusiasm where gradually in time and with perseverance the divine spirit and the human spirit, the divine loving and human loving, were fused together to unite us with Christ in his endless loving of his Father. When Peter arrived, I thought before he went any further, I had to tell him the truth about myself. So I told him that I was not a Roman Catholic after all, but an Episcopalian, and that frankly, I was rather embarrassed to be staying in a Roman Catholic presbytery under false pretenses. Peter reassured me without showing the slightest surprise that it didn't matter at all. I was a fellow Christian, that's what mattered. And if anything he could say would be of help to me, then that's all that mattered. I was eager to get things going again, so I reminded Peter what he'd said the previous day, that there was all the difference in the world between knowing that you are loved and experiencing being loved. Peter answered without hesitation, I meant just what I said. However, 
I do think the distinction has important implications for the spiritual life. So let me explain. I was at Strawberry Hill at the Teachers' Training College in London, staying with a lecturer and his wife near Twickenham Station. There were six other students and a young psychology lecturer called Mark, all staying in the same house. Now Mark and I found we had a lot in common, and a deep friendship grew up between the two of us. He was a brilliant lecturer, and I often went with him to the many outside engagements that he accepted. Wherever he went, he always began by belittling his own competence, assuring his audience that he felt sure that they knew far more about the subject than he did. If the contents and delivery of his material did not blatantly belie his preamble, you could not have blamed his audience if they got up and walked out before he even started. I think it was what I originally took for genuine humility in Mark that initially drew me to him. It was only later that I came to realise that he took a morbid delight in denigrating himself. It was only because we had grown close that I was able to ask him why he always apologised and ran himself down in front of others. I suppose, I suppose I've got what we psychologists called a psychological problem, he said, and I'm a classic case. He told me something about his childhood, about his parents, and how he believed that they did try their best for him. There was no doubt that they loved him, he was sure of it. However, because of some Victorian hang-up, they were prepared to go to any lengths to avoid spoiling him. They shunned all manifestations of affection. He was never kissed, never caressed, never held close or cuddled. All physical expressions of love were prohibited, even though it went against the grain. Naturally, all this came out during his training. As he looked back over the past, he could see quite clearly, and without a shadow of a doubt, that his parents loved him. He was absolutely convinced of it, but they never showed their love. He never experienced their love, and that made a big, big difference to his life. Because he had not received love, he found it difficult to build up friendships, difficult to let others love him, never mind love them. That is why he felt so insecure and behaved so immaturely on occasions. He was quite aware of his character problems, and he knew the reason why. But, as he explained himself, knowledge alone is not enough. It may give insight into yourself, but it does not give you the power to change. When I went to Paris, he went to the States to do a postgraduate course. It was there that he met his future wife at Harvard, just as you did. I met him just before coming out here, and he told me what falling in love had done for him. He said that for the first time in his life, he did not just know, but rather he experienced through her love that he was lovable. He said the experience was like someone breathing the breath of life into him, and for the first time, he came alive through her love and was beginning to discover a deep security and inner strength to throw away the defense mechanisms with which he had surrounded himself over the years and really start becoming himself. 
It is exactly the same with our relationship with God, Peter said. Through faith, we believe God loves us. We know he loves us. There can be no doubt about it. We can list all the gifts that have been showered on us to prove it, enumerating not only what he said, but what he's actually done. No matter how indisputable it is, or logically incontestable, or even scientifically provable, it will not deeply affect us. Knowledge alone is not enough. Knowledge alone will never change anyone permanently for the better. But the experience of being loved will. It's one thing to see a truth with the cold eye of intellect. Quite another to view the same truth with the eye of the mystic or the poet. It's all the difference between looking at a stained glass window from the outside and looking at it from within, all aglow with vivid colour, bursting with vibrant vitality and life. Peter was able to view a truth from the inside, not just because he had a facility with words, but because his profound contemplative prayer enabled him to see the truth from the inside, through the mystical love that possessed him. I was annoyed when the housekeeper came in to say that she'd just put our meals on the kitchen table. I wanted to tell Peter about my own spiritual journey that had led me nowhere. But there was plenty of time, and Peter was a good listener. I couldn't wait. When we sat down again in the living room, I began to tell Peter of my own search for wisdom. I believed that knowledge alone was enough, but I could see now that no amount of knowledge without love would ever enable me to find the true wisdom for which I yearned. Before I went to Harvard to study for my doctorate in law, I spent three years studying theology at Notre Dame. It was there that I relentlessly searched for the truth, for spiritual wisdom. I identified wisdom with knowledge and sought it out with all the intensity of an alchemist in search of the philosopher's stone. The haphazard plundering of dusty mystical tomes gradually gave way to the feverish desire to lay hands on the latest theological paperbacks. After several years of intensive reading, I emerged with a wholly new and exciting vision, only to realize with disappointment that the visionary remained unchanged. If knowledge of God could not change me, what about knowledge of humankind? Christ had, after all, identified himself with man, and surely this was what the gospel was about. Wasn't this the meaning of the Incarnation, that God had identified himself in Christ with the neighbor in need? I became a dedicated exponent of the tenets of the social gospel, with all the verve and vigor of a new convert. However, my practice didn't measure up to my preaching. My enthusiasm changed with the seasons, only to become snowed up in winter where my inner reserves of philanthropic energy hardened and froze over. There was still a flicker of flame in my head, but no fire in my belly. Knowledge of God had failed me. Knowledge of humankind had failed me too. 
Then it suddenly struck me like a flash of lightning. Why hadn't I seen it before? The words of the Delphic Oracle rang out loud and clear in my mind. Know thyself. Of course, it was obvious. I'd been blind all along. The real problem was within me. Knowledge of myself would set me free. Surely this was the spiritual philosopher's stone for which I had been searching. It was self-knowledge. I went away for a year before going to Harvard to do a course in pastoral psychology and counselling. You name it, we did it. Group dynamics, sensitivity sessions, personal analysis tutorials and counselling techniques. I know the course did me a lot of good. My faults, my failings, my problems of character, even my personal idiosyncrasies could be explained with detailed analysis of my childhood. At first, the experience was shattering. After the first few weeks, I ended up like Humpty Dumpty in pieces on the floor. But bit by bit, I was put together again. The better for my experience, I'm sure. At the end of the year, I felt liberated. The truth had indeed set me free. It was only gradually, as the weeks went by, that I realised once more that knowledge alone was not enough. The psychological knowledge I'd gained about myself was true, but it didn't give me the power to change myself. It showed me all the blemishes, but it didn't remove them. At the end of it all, I was back to square one. Peter smiled and nodded when I told him something of my odyssey in search of wisdom, as if my experience was a carbon copy of his own, which it couldn't possibly have been. When will we ever learn, Peter said. Believe me, every age has its own solutions to the world's problems, with its own secular prophets, each with their own brand of infallibility, and their own political correctness did you challenge at your peril. Peter paused for a moment, gently moving his head from side to side, his lower lip lapping tightly over the upper lip as he mused sadly on the tragedy of the human predicament. You would wonder how generation after generation of rational animals could fail to see a truth so obvious, so simple, that even a child knows it by instinct, even before the age of reason. We want to know fulfilment. We want to experience joy. We want to be lifted out of ourselves into endless ecstasy and share our completion with others. The only drink that can slake our burning inner thirst are the living waters of uncreated love, it is only under the influence of this intoxicating draught that we will ever be able to see ourselves, not as a psychiatrist sees us, as we are, but as we're meant to be. It will give us the strength to grow into our true selves from the ruins that we are now. Then we will be able to reach out to others with the genuine hand of fraternity, to give of ourselves totally in love to the neighbour in need, because we have love to give, not just dreams to share. 
Peter, <laughs> Peter shifted uncomfortably in his chair. He was slightly self-conscious at the extravagant way he'd expressed himself. I don't want to give the impression that I'm anti-intellectual, he said, or that I despise contemporary yearning. On the contrary, I've advised many correspondents to go on for higher studies and several to study sociology. Only a month ago, I told someone to consult a psychiatrist because I realized she needed the sort of competent professional help that I was unable to give. All I'm trying to do is to reiterate and underline that no human branch of human learning will ever answer our deepest needs. They may expose them, but they will never fulfill them. After listening intently, I told Peter that I agreed with him and was grateful for everything that I'd learned, but I was a bit disappointed when I found that the truth did not set me free. Oh, but it does, said Peter. Truth is not just a body of facts. Truth is a person. In God, truth and love are one and the same, both light and life. Truth not only shows you yourself as you are, but as you ought to be. But further to this, it not only gives you vision, but it also gives you the inner power and strength to fashion that vision into reality. Mark's analysis of his childhood experience was factual, accurate, and in that sense true. But this knowledge did not liberate him because it was not the truth. For the truth, the ultimate truth, as St. John saw so clearly, was that God is love. And it is only love that can change us permanently for the better. In God, truth and love are one and the same. So his truth reaches out and touches the head and the heart at one and the same time. Mark's predicament was in one sense exceptional, but in another sense it is merely the predicament of all of us, but in bright colours. We don't all have king-sized chips on our shoulders, and we are not all overburdened with such weighty inferiority complexes, but we all have some security problems, and we all suffer from guilt. In our more clear-sighted moments, we know very well that we are prized specimens of feeble human frailty. We fail time and time again to live up to even the cameo ideals that we set for ourselves. Day after day we experience the weakening moral incontinence that drains us dry, that leaves us apprehensive and perplexed, even when we're trying our best. Peter then made it quite clear that what eventually happened to Mark must happen to us too if we are to be radically changed. After all, this is what the gospel is teaching on almost every page. It shows us over and over again the effects of love unlimited as it progressively invades a human nature, the human nature of Jesus Christ. It shows how under its powerful influence, and in the words of St. Luke, it grows within him in wisdom and understanding with the years as his humanity ripens and matures under the influence of love. 
Now Jesus was absolutely sure that he had parental love. He knew by experience that his father loved him because that love was tangibly present to him day after day. That is why he is the most mature human being who ever walked on the face of this earth. No one has ever experienced such depth or intensity of love before nor been so absolutely sure of its continued and lasting presence. This is why he was in complete possession of himself, totally secure, fully himself. We like to present Christ as the model for Christian action by showing how he was so uncompromisingly available to all. But we fail to realise that he was only able to be open to all because he was firstly open to God. It was only because he exposed himself without restraint to God's love that he could be filled with the fullness of love, from which the infused virtues were generated. That is why he could communicate truth to others with such kindness and with such compassion. But without the hidden years, the desert, the lonely garden, the inner room, there could be no compassion for the needy, no love for the loveless, no healing for the sick. To follow him, then, doesn't mean that we should try to copy him as an artist copies a model. It does not mean that we should merely imitate the outward manifestations of the inner light that burned within him. It means that we must expose ourselves to that self-same light, that it may set us afire too. As Peter was finishing his last sentence, he reached into the top of his donkey jacket, pulled out an old watch fastened to a broken strap. He put the watch back into his pocket and looked down at the floor for a moment in silence. I knew that it was time for Peter to go, so after I waved him goodbye, I went inside to make myself a cup of tea and to ponder over the profound truths that hadn't fully seeped into my soul. There are rare moments in everybody's life when there's a sudden flash of insight that strikes like lightning, so swift that it defies measurement, it leaves a microscopic vision that expands in your mind like the ripples from a stone tossed into a pool. This happened as I was reflecting on all that Peter had said. I'd talked of love, but where was I going to conjure it from? I'd no idea. I'd noticed that the trendy exponents of the conventional wisdom became rather vague and woolly at this point. They assumed that once the child in us was released, then the mature adult would emerge and fountains of inner energy would flood into our conscious mind, bringing liberation, profound inner security, and moral equilibrium. Marcus Aurelius would write again, by kind permission of modern psychology. With Peter's help, I'd come to realize that there is only one source of energy to revitalize human beings. It is only when the dynamic rays of God's inexhaustible love begin to permeate the very marrow of our inner being 
that we receive the strength to stand up and grow, to ripen and bud under its influence, and finally to open out and blossom forth. Without this source of life, we've no more chance of growing than a drooping geranium in a dark room. We can only begin to expose ourselves to the light if we are fundamentally convinced that we can't grow without it. This is why the proud, the pompous and the pretentious will never be able to see the direction of the light, never mind expose themselves to it. Once we see clearly that the spiritual life begins with God, everything slots into place. It does not begin with us trying to love him or other people for that matter but with us trying to allow his love to burst into our lives. If we first seek the kingdom of God's love, then everything will fall into place. Only when this process gets underway properly will we be radically and fundamentally renewed to love him in return, create community, enter into others in a way and on a level we'd never envisaged possible before. All this will be possible not just by the power of our love, but because another will live in us and love with us and through us. Now the way ahead seemed clear. At least the central intuition of my vision remained. Everything pointed in the same direction. There was now only one road for me to follow, only one way for me to go. All I had to do was to learn anew how to open myself to God, to his love, how to welcome that love into my life, and how to experience that love throbbing within me. In short, I had to start again at square one, to begin again to learn how to pray. Everything Peter said or implied, Everything I'd seen in my fleeting vision led to the same realization. I started years ago along the road, but I'd been continually sidetracked. Thank God, at last I was being given the grace to cry out with all the urgency and heartfelt sincerity of a prodigal son. Lord, Lord, teach me to pray. Thank you for joining David Talkington for The Hermit, part one from his book Wisdom from the Western Isles. The music, Traumarai, from Dreams from Childhood, was composed by Schumann and performed by the Catholic concert pianist Vincent Billington. The Hermit was produced and edited by Bobby Talkington.